Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people made to life in Yarra, and pay our respects to all elders, past, present and future. This episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast is brought to you by Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust. Fitzroy Library is fortunate to have the continued support of the Ewing Trust, a fund that fosters literacy, libraries and a lifelong love of learning in the historic Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy. Through the support of the Ewing Trust, Fitzroy Library is able to run special events and programs, including the Fitzroy Writers Festival, for the benefit of Fitzroy residents and visitors to the area. On this podcast, we are joined by author Christopher Raja to discuss his latest memoir, Into the Suburbs. Beginning when Christopher was 11 and his father David decided to move the family to Australia in pursuit of a new lifestyle, through his tumultuous teenage years and into university life, Into the Suburbs is a story of raw honesty and emotion. On the surface, the Rajas appear to be living a normal Australian life, but as Christopher embraces the freedoms of his adopted country, and his father becomes more and more disenchanted, a story emerges that explores topical issues of race, class and migration, while focusing on the hopes and dreams of a suburban family. Into the Suburbs is published by the University of Queensland Press, and is available to buy from all good booksellers, as well as being available to borrow from Yarra Libraries. Hello Chris, welcome to the Yarra Libraries podcast, thanks for joining us. Hi Sam, thank you for having me. No worries. Uh, Now, we're going to talk about your memoir, Into the Suburbs, which has just come out. Tell us the story of your life when you moved from Calcutta in India to Melbourne when you were uh, 11 years old. Through the first years of university, uh, before you wrote Into the Suburbs, you co-authored a play called The First Garden in 2012. Then in 2015, you released your debut novel called The Burning Elephant. What inspired you to change from fiction to non-fiction? It wasn't a conscious decision. The book evolved. Started off as uh, as a journal. You know, I, I keep I keep a journal, and it started off in my journal. And there was a long gestation period where I've been thinking about writing this book, uh, possibly going back to when I was 18 years old. And so, in that time, I I unexpectedly again wrote a play, and that was the first garden. And then I wrote this novel. The Burning Elephant, a novella, and I had thought that the second part of The Burning Elephant would be uh, this book, and but then I just ima- abandoned the idea about setting the, the the Australian section, as it was called. I abandoned the idea, and then um, I picked it up sometime later, and it got shortlisted for the Penguin uh, Prize in 2019 and the judges asked me whether you know what, what they had one big question and that was whether it was a novel or a uh, a novel or a memoir and i had to think about that and and eventually i decided look i i i'm going to submit this as a, a memoir and mm. i submitted it to my agent martin shaw and several publishers wanted the manuscript and i decided to go with University of Queensland Press, a uh, public uh, publisher that I greatly admired. 
So what do you think, yeah, as a as a writer, what do you think are the main differences that you encounter when between writing nonfiction as opposed to fiction? Well, for me, for me, I always approach writing like a novelist, uh, in the sense that I try and show uh, scenes, I set up scenes, I try and develop characters, um, you know, fully, and I and I create uh, settings. So even though it was a memoir, Into the Suburbs is written like a novel. It reads like a novel. I've been told yeah. that, and so, yeah, but one of the questions that her reader would naturally have when when they read this is is this really happening to this guy and and I thought well you know what I'm just going to state a few things that really did happen and and put it out there and um, I was greatly influenced by the writing of Peter Hanke who wrote a book uh, called A Sorrow Beyond Dreams and I was reading uh, Nausgaard's autobiographical My Struggle and and sometimes when I read autobiographical novels, I think, why is the writer hiding behind fiction when it so obviously is drawing from their life? And so I thought, rather than claim my story was really a novel, in my life was really hidden behind a novel, I thought, you know, mm. there's a lot of truth in here. And But I also want to acknowledge that with memory and and truth, these are subjective terms and so i'm reluctant to say this is the definitive truth it's a really interesting thing to think about because you know memory itself is in a lot of ways so flawed so you know even with a memoir you can imagine something that happened uh you know and then you know you look at an email or something reminds you of the past and it's actually two years after you thought that that would have happened in the timeline of your life and yeah, things like that it can all get quite jumbled up. So it must be quite tricky to be able to remember some of those things. Yeah, that's right. And and you know, and I think and I think part of the job of a writer is to be a witness. But you know, anyone who's been to a court case or been inside a courtroom, and you know, as you hear different witnesses, it's very hard to um, know what happened on a certain day. And um, if you speak to say ten people, you'll get different accounts. Mm. But Rather than say my story was about all migrants, I just wanted to give a give an insight into my experiences and and my family's experiences about what it was like to be migrants in the in Melbourne's outer suburbs at a particular time, and yeah, and so I wanted to approach the topic humbly, but also um, you know without a grand expectation that I was somehow writing a non-fiction book about migrants. You write a lot, especially in the early parts of the book, uh, you write a lot about the culture shock of coming from Calcutta to Melbourne, uh, especially in the first few months that you arrived here. What do you remember most from that initial period after the move? Well, the, the one thing that my family and I uh, were really struck by was the lack of people, you know, the lack of pedestrians on the street, uh, the quiet and lonely streets compared to Calcutta where, you know, you could sit on any roadside and see so much happening and so many sites. Whereas here, you know, you could walk down the street and not come across anyone. And so it was quite lonely and quiet when we first arrived and, and we noticed that. One of the things that happened though, um, you know, as migrants, we were only allowed a certain amount of money to take out of India at that time. The mm. government only yeah. allowed my father to take out 
twenty dollars. Yeah. And my mother to take out twenty dollars, and I was allowed to take out twenty dollars, and so literally we left India with sixty dollars, wow. and we had to fly from Calcutta Airport to Singapore, where I saw for the first time these really fancy Reebok runners, and I desperately wanted them, and so mm. I begged my parents, "Oh, please buy me those shoes! Please buy me those shoes!" and they did buy me the shoes, and so I was really excited because finally I had these Australian shoes or these foreign shoes. I mean, everything foreign was Australian in my head. It was all jumbled up. And yeah. so the first day that I arrived in Australia, thinking, wow, I'm finally here in this fantastic rich country, which my parents have talked so much about. My cousin took me for a swim, Clayton Town Pool. And I had no idea where, 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 we, where we were going. And, and so, I, so I went to the swimming pool and got changed and dived into the pool and very excitedly splashed around. But no one seemed to be doing laps. And, and, but everyone seemed to be looking at each other and sort of... And then I went back into the change room. My shoes were missing. Mm. So I ran out and told my cousin, hey, um, Judy, my, where are my shoes? And... She said, what do you mean, where are your shoes? And she said, uh, I said, well, I left them in the change room and someone's taken them. She goes, what did you do? You left your, your new runners, uh, Reeboks, in the change room. And I said, yeah. She goes, well, you're an idiot. Someone's obviously stolen them. And that was my first welcome to Australia. Someone had stolen my brand new shoes on my first day. And <laughs> I was really surprised by that. I thought, wow, I've just come from Calcutta. To this really rich country which my parents have spoken so much about and on the first day my brand new shoes have been stolen <laughs> yeah i guess you know before you came you would have had preconceived ideas about what australia was like and that's you know that they're probably from you know the the impressions of australia from the people around you uh, you know your family but also from you know the culture that you see on tv or read about how did your thoughts on Australia, your preconceived ideas, uh, measure up to what you actually encountered when you got here? Yeah, Sam. So I think the shoes was one example. Uh, another yeah. example was, of course, encountering my, my family that were already here who looked Indian but had started to become, you know, more Australian and so spoke with broad Australian accents yet looked like us. Mm. And that was strange too. And, you know, now, of course, I'm speaking in such a broad Australian accent. But how we change and how we become Australian and, and no longer Indian, that was really intriguing to me, to look at people who looked like they still belonged in India but acted, dressed and behaved like Australians or what I thought was an Australian at the time. The preconceived idea of Australia as a, you know, a land where... You know, everyone's essentially pretty equal. Everyone gets a fair go. Uh, it's the lucky country. What about the people, you know, the people and the attitudes that you encountered? How did that measure up? One of the things that, you know, when I first arrived, I, I had heard certain racial epitaphs being used. And, and I won't go into them now, but I do go into them in the book. And yeah. they took me by surprise, you know, certain racial names being thrown around and um, that was quite hurtful I guess but you know I was young and so 
I tried to let it all sort of fall, you know, like a water off a duck's back. I just wanted to just move, get on with it, you know, and I, I was too busy trying to be an Aussie and I was a teenager. So, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know, the hormones are moving around and, and, and things which I didn't expect. So there was so much going on that it was hard to process whilst it was happening. And so I try to just show these things rather than point them out or tell the reader what's going on. I just try and yeah. show life as it appeared for um, this young teenage boy in the outskirts of Melbourne and indirectly expose racism and class and, and these sort of um, themes. Yeah. When I was growing up and living in New Zealand and thinking back in my high school experiences, where basically it was just um, you know Anglo kids, some Maori and Pacific Island kids, and then a few kids from Asia and India. Just thinking back on what that must have been like for those kids, because it was the racism that they encountered from the other kids, which was just kind of like you know really really present there. Uh, and the book reminded me a lot of that. It reminded me a lot of kids who I you know went to school with and haven't really thought about weren't wasn't really friends with but they were in my class for you know a small period of time it kind of made me think back and remember about those kids yeah that's interesting Sam and 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 that was in a sense one of the motivations of writing it like a memoir which was it's quite easy to exoticize or see these people that you know were in your classroom for instance uh, that you never spent much time thinking about. So I wanted to make that person the outsider, the other, very real. And I wanted to make them three-dimensional. And I also mm. wanted to make them factual because so often we, you know, see them as characters, subjects to be studied or written about in a comical way or given a funny accent in a comedy. And I didn't want to do any of that. I wanted to give them flesh and blood and bone and make them real. And I wanted to give them backstories that were real and mm. names that were had histories. And these were the reasons why I approached the subject matter in the way that I did. I didn't want to muck around and say, oh, you know, these are, these are characters in a, in a story. Yes, it is a story, but it's mm. also people's lives and not just my life but in this sense in this instance it is my life but there are still other children in schools who are uh, outsiders there are still people all over who are outsiders who are marginalized and um, so rather than make it a novel I thought you know only these really famous people prime ministers get to tell their memoir or we get to write their biography what about an unknown ordinary uh, migrant family in the outskirts of Melbourne. Wouldn't that be something if I could get it up a memoir about someone who's unknown and not very special, just ordinary like me? The, the, the experience, the, the migratory experience, uh, especially in such a multicultural place like Melbourne, uh, is something that would resonate with a lot of people out there. Your first week of high school in Singleton High, you described the student population uh, in this way, you say, almost all of the students were minority national groups. They were migrants from Yugoslavia, Greece, Italy, South Africa, Argentina, Lebanon, and Vietnam. 
And then you go on to talk about how things in the culture are used to find common grounds, sports, you know, particularly footy. One of the things that I also discovered whilst going into, you know, hanging out with other migrants, yeah, just because we're migrants or just because we're minorities, I didn't, I didn't want to give the impression that somehow we were all one big group and we all got along either. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was the other thing, you know, like, you know, when you come across bullies in school, often you'd be bullied by another migrant kid who was feeling equally like an outsider and he'd want to punch you up just because he was having a hard time fitting in. Mm. So I didn't want to give it, give, you know, a simplistic um, impression that this was just a white and black kind of divide. It's much more complex than that. Sometimes brown migrants beat up other brown migrants just because they want to feel superior or something. I don't know. I, you know, so I wanted to play around with these sort of, I didn't want to use any simplistic or stereotypical ideas or, um, when describing any of this. Apart from yourself, you know, the main characters in the book are your mum and your dad. And you spend a lot of time, you give a lot of time uh, thinking about what it must have been like for your mum and also your dad. Yeah, initially, how do you think that your mum and your dad were processing the move to to Australia? I know your dad had been here yes. before. He visited his um, friends. Yes. I do spend time considering the, the previous generation who, yeah. who, you know, who make the move from their homeland to the new country. And, uh, you know, and of course, I'm the child or a, a product of the child that tags along on that trip. My, my father, he, he wanted to come. He was ambitious and he wanted to make the most of the new opportunity in the new land of opportunity, which was Australia. And he was doing quite well. And in, in Calcutta, he was a headmaster. And uh, my mum was a primary school teacher in Calcutta. And so she was a bit sceptical. She wasn't sure what, would, what the move would mean for us. I mean, obviously, we'd be leaving behind certain members of our family, my grandmother, you know, in our life there. It was going to be a disruption. And my mum could see that. That wasn't as cut and dry, you know. And, you know, sometimes we often get the impression that migrants are desperate to leave their poor backward countries. But sometimes, mm. you know, it's, their backward countries aren't just backward. I mean, India, you know, has its difficulties, but it's also, you know, there are many advantages of, for Indians as well. So again, I wanted to explore that, you know, and so I also wanted to look at, say, not just my mum and dad, but also some of the adults around them and some of their children around them and, and look at what benefits there was for, for older migrants to move to a country like Australia. And in some cases, there weren't many benefits, you know, their degrees weren't recognised, so mm. you'd have people who used to be headmasters working in factories. Yeah. You know, you'd have people who were judges ending up as, um, you know, tram drivers, really smart people, you know, who left their country and then, you know, end up working in menial jobs in Australia. And so that was a big shift for them. And so, you know, and they would do that and sacrifice all of that for their children. So there's this big pressure then on migrant children to then do well. Yeah. One thing I really enjoyed about the book is um, when you're writing about very significant events in your life and you're setting the scene around you know, what happened during, you know, how these events played out and what it was like for you, you often choose to draw focus on things that were happening in your vicinity at the time, like around you. Um, I remember there's one part in the book where you go to St Kilda Beach uh, to clear your mind and you see some kids rolling a supermarket trolley into the water. 
Yeah. Um, why do you think it's important to focus okay. on these on these uh, smaller details? Well, I'm a voracious reader, and so I love the way books are put together. And of course, supermarket trolleys. I mean, you only have to move to the suburbs <laughs> to realize what a starring role supermarket trolleys play. So, you know, as you go for a walk in our suburbs, you see these extraordinary objects, I'd call them. They're almost like art pieces, mm. and you'd find them uh, abandoned in a in a quiet street or perhaps in you know in the middle of a pond and yep. you'd wonder how did it get there how did that how did that shopping trolley end up in that pond or you know how come there's a duck sitting on that shopping trolley and <laughs> i would always marvel at that too <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> after i finished the book the first thing I did was I, I felt compelled to go back and, and reread the first chapter. In the first chapter, you tell a, a brief story about your grandfather and your family name. I, I guess I'm wondering, why did you decide to start the book with that story? Sometimes, you know, there's a lot that you do that you don't, real, you don't really know why you're doing it when you're writing a book. I mean, there's so much that I do that I don't really have the answer. And I don't mm. really know what I'm doing, to be honest, Sam. One of the reasons, I guess, why I started the book with that, with that idea of the name was because I wanted to set up a scene where the question of identity was at the forefront and who are we and what are our names and whether we can trust our names and what if we don't really know our names and we don't really know who we are. I mean, a lot of us don't really know who we really are. And I wanted to explore that, you know, I wanted to explore uh, that sense of identity, but also not just in terms of, or whether I'm an Indian or whether I'm an Australian, but whether I was a human and what kind of human I was and whether I actually had some self-awareness, whether my name meant anything. And, who was that person with that name? Yeah, so all these questions I have and, and, and had. So I just put, I began with that story of the grandfather. You know, he changed his name so that it would be easier for someone to pronounce. And I used to be a high school teacher. Mm. And I used to, um, you know, come across a lot of Asian kids in my class and Aboriginal kids in my class who would have these very Western names. And I would wonder... And sometimes I ask them straight out, how come your name is such and such? And, and they would say, well, you know, we decided, my family decided to change our name so that, would be, so that it would be easier for everyone else to pronounce. And I thought, wow, I didn't know if that was sad or convenient or, or pragmatic. My family did the same so in British India. So it was a, I thought it was a good way to start the book. The book's also a really good read for people interested in uh, hearing about what Melbourne is like at a certain period in time. You know, there's a there's a lot of descriptions of the of Melbourne in the in the mid '80s into the '90s. You lived in uh, you know in the outer suburbs, but you also attended university at the University of Melbourne. Uh, you went to a lot of gigs. Uh, you you hung out in, in Brunswick. 
you know, there's a lot for the people uh, for people who are familiar with the inner city, but also the outer suburbs as well. When you look back on the book, does it make you think about what's changed in Melbourne? Uh, I have a I, if yeah, I have a I suppose a thread running through my work, and that would be about um, setting. Setting's very important for my work. I started off uh, as a writer writing a play, which was a site-specific play for the Alice Springs Botanical Garden, which was called The First Garden. My second book was very much located in Calcutta, The Burning Elephant, which is completely set in Calcutta. And again, there, mm. the setting of Calcutta is, you know, you could, you could go to Calcutta and visit those places. Uh, same with the Botanical Garden in Alice Springs. And so yep. I wanted to really, um, you know, like a time capsule with Calcutta and the Burning Elephant, I wanted to create another time capsule uh, of what Melbourne was like for me. And so I mentioned, you know, real places, real names, real streets. I changed a couple of things, obviously, to not embarrass or expose people because, after all, this is a memoir. So, but, yes, you do the, – the intention was to give a very – as you – you know, you get a clear description of the city and its surrounds and its surrounding suburbs and the nightlife uh, as, you read, as you read this book, yeah. That, that was an intention. And, and, and the fact that i written the book uh, so many years after the incidents that I write about, it gave me a greater appreciation and probably a better perspective to look back at the things as they used to be, even though I know some of those things have changed. Your your father he was a he's a very uh, well read man a very intelligent man. What kind of influence do you think he had on you wanting to be a writer? You know I, I reflected on that a lot, and both my mum and dad, you know, being teachers, yep. both of them, in, you know, gave me that love for books, and you know, took me to libraries, introduced me to books and libraries from a young age, and films, and and you know the cultural cultural life, and of course. Calcutta, where I was born, was a, is a very cultural city. And then, of course, Melbourne is as well. So, mm. you know, this idea of reading and books and library was part of my life. From It wasn't an extension or something that I strived for. It was just around me. You know, in terms of becoming a writer, I don't know. I don't know if that necessarily goes hand in hand. I think I was first and foremost a reader. And that love for books was certainly something that both my mum and dad gave me. And um, and so, but writing, I think, is a bit of a curse. I don't know why anyone becomes a writer. That's a mystery. Uh, <laughs> and that's a whole other thing. And if you become a writer, uh, I, I'm looking for some logical explanation about that. That's a strange thing. I don't know why someone chooses to become a writer. I think it just happens to them. I don't really have an idea. I don't know if it's, you know, because your parents were teachers and smart that you that necessarily equates to being a writer. I mean, you could do some, so many other smarter things with your life. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of writers have, you know, said or, or interviews I've read with writers have really similar sentiments. Uh, it seems like... Uh, you know, people are writers because they feel that they have to do it. There's something inside them which just compels them to write. Whenever I think about this idea, there's this song by a New Zealand band called Dimmer, and it's called Seed, and it's about um, 
they're musicians because they they just are. It's not a choice they made. Uh, and it's nothing in the you know it's nothing to be proud about. It's nothing to write home about. But they can't stop doing it. It's like they don't have a choice. I like that idea, and you know I'll take that even a little bit further. I mean, I would also you know I don't think I don't I think yes, there's a love for language and a love for music, and you become an artist because you might you know just love music, or in my case, you might just love books. But you know. There is an aspect, I think, that can't be overlooked, and that is art is a form of therapy. And, mm. and I think there is something therapeutic about putting words down on a page and exploring how you feel. It might not make you feel better. At least it's something. I mean, you know, you could choose to drink alcohol or do something destructive, but there is something, well, lots of writers do both, but... But there is something therapeutic about, you know, sitting in front of the empty page and trying to fill it up. And, you know, it's a one way of passing time in a, in a strange way. And in a sense, we're all just passing time. Yeah. You know, especially if you're writing a memoir, it makes you kind of think about the way, you know, other ways in your life that you've passed time and things that have happened to you in your life. So I guess that's quite therapeutic as well, yeah? Yeah, I, I, I suppose there was a certain amount of catharsis that comes with writing a memoir. I think there's more to it too. I mean, because I think just the act, the physical act of filling up a page, the rhythm of writing a sentence, the fact that you get out of I mean, even though you might be writing about your own life, the physical act of writing down words takes you from your current mm. moment. And puts you in a different place. And that can be with fiction. That can be with writing a play. That can be with writing a novel. That can be with just the physical act and the time that you spend being creative in any form. Takes you out of your your day-to-day physicality of life. It takes you out of eating, drinking, sitting in a room and with a pandemic or a lockdown. And for a brief moment, you can find yourself wherever you want when you are being creative. And it removes you from that. It removes you from normal time somehow. And I think that's something that I'm really interested in. And What are you working on at the moment creatively? I've been working on a novel. Mm-hmm. and uh, But then that novel got hijacked with Into the Suburbs. Somehow I went back to Into the Suburbs and, and it really got a momentum of its own. And so, you know, next thing is it's being published and launched yesterday. <laughs> and uh, mm. uh, so, but I've still got this, this novel that I'm working on. So, so I've, 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 going back to, I've gone back to that. don't want to go too much into that because I actually want to finish it. So, yeah, so I, am, I have got another project on. And another writer told me once that they never like to talk about something they're working on because it almost seems to jinx it in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, I've just got to keep going with it and get it um, where I want. And the process normally would be then to show it to my agent and, um, yeah, and publisher. Are you a writer that likes to read uh, other people's works while you're writing? I'm a voracious reader. As I said, Sam, I, I read everything. And in a way, I'm first and foremost a reader. I, I, that's why I, I love libraries so much. 
yeah, I mean, you know, things which have nothing to do with my interests, nothing to do with what I'm working on, nothing to do with where I'm living. I love fiction. I love fiction that's translated, uh, that comes from places I've never been to. I love a lot of European writers. I love Europe. I love Australian literature and, and very much as well. But I also read a lot of nonfiction and uh, mm. history so and religion. I love, I'm fascinated with uh, uh, writers writing about religion and memoirs and Emmanuel Carreri, Carreri, the French writer, who just read his book, The Kingdom, about St. Paul and autofiction, autobiography about himself, Emmanuel, and the Apostle St. Paul. I found that fascinating. And, uh, yeah, so I'm constantly reading, yeah. So Radio National uh, asked me to read Jasper mm-hmm. Ford's latest book, The Constant Rabbit. So I've just finished that in the last day. And I read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, um, a great book about American uh, black men incarcerated mm-hmm. in America. That was made into a movie. I haven't seen the movie, but Just Mercy, it's a terrific book. My friend Ali Kobiakaman, who launched my book, I, I, I dip into her poetry, the Aboriginal poet. Yeah, just remarkable. Mm-hmm. I love uh, a lot of Austrian authors. In I've spent time in uh, Austria, so I read a lot of German writers, uh, Thomas Bernhard, Robert Musil. Thank you very much for uh, for talking to us today, Chris. I really enjoyed the book. Good luck for the rest of the book tour. And thanks for sharing your your experiences uh, in this book. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. I hope I didn't carry on too much. <laughs> that was Christopher Raja talking about his new memoir, Into the Suburbs, which is published by the University of Queensland Press and is available to buy from all good booksellers, as well as being available to borrow from Yarra Libraries. Please rate, share and subscribe to the Yarra Libraries podcast feed for more podcasts like this. If you are not a Yarra Libraries member, please join. It is free and gives you access to the vast collection situated across five libraries within the city of Yarra. Thanks once again to the Ewing Trust for the support of literacy and learning in Fitzroy and for making this podcast possible. Mm-hmm.